Welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, joined by Dr. Kenneth Howell. And uh, you're hearing us from the studios of the Coming Home Network International. Thank you for joining us. We're uh, in the process of uh, studying the, the book of Romans. And we're, today we're going to look at Romans chapter 10, verse 13 through the end of chapter 10, verse 21. Um, we've got an email to begin with, but I just have to say that this particular passage of Scripture, I mentioned a couple weeks ago that I didn't preach at all from this section of Romans, and that's basically true, though there are parts of Romans chapter 10 that I have to uh, admit I was wrong. Uh, I remember as a Protestant minister, not only those verses in chapter, in, in earlier in chapter 10, verses 8, 9, and 10, that were a key part of what many of us called the Roman road, uh, kind of the end of the Roman road after a person understands that God has a wonderful call for their life and that they're sinners and in need of a Savior. Then we're drawn to this section in Romans where Paul says that if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. That's, that's the early part of this chapter. And then it leads to verse 13 in which Paul is quoting from the prophet Joel, and he's building his argument on, on a very important statement from Joel, when Joel says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, the, the question is, and Ken, I'm, I'm kind of waxing eloquently on this, but if you want to chime in, feel free. The, the question behind this statement that Paul in, in the Christian reflection on this, after the death and resurrection of Christ, he's dipping back into the Old Testament scriptures, back into the prophets, a statement by the prophet Joel, making a very bold and broad proclamation that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And the question is, now wait a second. Does that mean Judaism? Does that mean beyond the walls of Judaism? Who does that apply to? Uh, is it every individual? Is it uh, only Jews? And just that idea of taking this Old Testament text out of its context of the Old Testament prophet and bringing it into the New Covenant was an issue in the early church. To whom does this apply? And why have not some responded? I'm thinking about those of you that might be listening to this program. You're driving in a car. Or maybe you're listening to it on a podcast in your, in your earbuds as you're running along the path or walking your dog. And I would encourage you to look around you. Look at people in those other cars. Uh, maybe people walking along the path. Someone sitting over there on a bench. And just think for a second about them. And do they know the Lord? Have they heard the gospel? Have they responded to the gospel? What about their lives? And think about the significance of this passage. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And can I know from your background as a Presbyterian pastor and my own that the significance of what this verse is saying, which led to Paul's reflections in verses 14 to 21, was a key to your own understanding of your ministry as a Protestant pastor. 
Well, it certainly was because, uh, you know, we've been talking about this whole thing about uh, the Jews and Paul's uh, dealing with it in chapters 9 and all the way through the end of chapter 11. In chapter 10, you know, he talks about the proclamation of the gospel and the um, requirement that we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. The promise being that we shall be saved. Uh, The business of being a a pastor is about the salvation of souls with which uh, every Catholic should agree. Um, And we believed that as Protestants, that that was our that was our task was to bring people to the Lord, to bring them to faith in Christ. And in the light of the fact that we're we're ministers uh, of the new covenant, Paul says in verse 12, chapter 10, verse 12, that there's no distinction between the Jew and the Greek. And that's why he quotes this text from Joel chapter three that you mentioned. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So we were in the business of bringing people to faith and then nurturing them in faith. This passage that we're dealing with today is a very interesting one and one that we might easily just sort of slide over and miss its significance. But Paul is giving us an understanding of how people can come to faith, how they can come to deeper faith, and what's required for that. So how is it that people can come to the place where they can call on the name of the Lord and thus be saved. Well, he's going to go into that in our text today. And Ken, it seems like an important, another sidelight just to mention, is that this verse 13, which we covered last week, which comes from Joel 2.32, the context in that period of salvation history, the, the idea of being saved did not necessarily mean what we think of today in our Christian perspective as mm-hmm. when we face judgment at the end of life. Right, that, that's right. that the original Old Testament context in verse 32 of Joel was about uh, you know being saved and as a remnant as a result of the exile and, uh, and all of that context in their history. And at that time, you know, they weren't settled yet in their thinking on what's going to happen after life. Um, you know, they talk about shades and they talk about Sheol and, uh, and Gehenna mm-hmm. and, and the place of the dead. And, and, you know, it wasn't quite true, but like Jesus along the road of Emmaus explaining to the disciples how the Old Testament prophets are fulfilled in him and what they meant, then we've come to understand that this salvation is a process Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That it's not just a one-time thing, but it's a lifelong journey. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and, and, and it's a good point you're making here because um, when it says that those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, the the Old Testament context was not necessarily a salvation in the sense of eternal life that we Christians believe. They thought of it maybe as being saved from destruction, you know, from an enemy or or being destroyed uh, when when the Lord comes to judge Jerusalem, that there will be a remnant that will be saved. But those historical events, just like the exodus of the Old Testament, are forecastings or are pictures of the greater sense of being saved, and that is sharing not only um, 
safety in this life, but eternal safety with God in heaven. Those <clears throat> the New Testament writers are pretty unanimous in looking at all of those events of Israel's history as having a prophetic or as being a prophetic voice pointing forward to a greater, more complete and eternal salvation that the Messiah would bring. Yeah, there's a common verse in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, that almost every evangelical Protestant uh, is knows by heart. You know, and for a grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. And, and we usually take that, we hear the word saved, and we're thinking that, therefore, I used to interpret that verse to mean once saved, always saved. By grace we have been saved. But the context means that those pagans, like the pagans that Paul's writing to in Rome here, were, were pulled out of their pagan background into the Christian faith, not because of any good works they did while they were back pagans, but by grace while they were yet pagans, while they were yet sinners, Roman, Paul had said in early Romans, while they were yet lost, he reached in and brought them into faith. And therefore, as a result of that, the response was, as in earlier in Romans 10, that they professed their faith uh, in Christ. They confessed with their lips and in the, in the tradition of the church. That meant that they were their candidate, therefore candidates for baptism. And that confession was an external expression of what was going on inside. Of course, we never can see anybody's inside. But it was an, an evidence of grace that had worked in their hearts to open their hearts to Christ. And the confession was their willful acceptance of what grace had done in their hearts. Mm -hmm. and, and that's the question behind this whole section here is that, okay, all that being said, then they would look at all the Jews who had received those Old Testament prophets, received the message, received the, the message of Moses and Isaiah. Uh, why haven't they responded? Why haven't they come to Christ? What's wrong here? And, and we're in the middle of this whole argument. Now, we do have an email, and, uh, and I love the email, Ken, because it gives me an excuse to bring you into something that I had to speak on last weekend. Um, the email says, Dear Marcus, I heard you speak this weekend on Christ's statement, quote, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no life in you, symbolic or liberal. Can you and Dr. Howell discuss this? verse in relationship to the passage you will be discussing this week from Romans. In other words, what if they have not heard or understood? Now, Ken, I don't want to go through all my whole talk this last weekend, but the question is, listen to these words from Christ, John chapter 6, in which he says, our Lord says this, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Now, the context of that is the giving of his body and blood in the Eucharist. That's how it's always been understood. And this, you have no life in you, the context, this life is eternal life, new life in Christ. That's the context of John 6. And so the question is symbolic or literal, and I wonder if Ken, in our own lives as Protestants, before we recognize the beauty of the Catholic Church, that is, is part of the reason that the movement to 
easily write this off as symbolic rather than take it seriously was because of this of what Christ is saying here. And what about those who haven't heard it, haven't responded? That is the context of our Roman passage today. You know, first of all, how do you deal with that passage when you were a Presbyterian? Well, that's a that's a <laughs> it's a, a complicated question, or, or rather, the answer is complicated. Um, but you know, it's interesting this particular issue of uh, Christ's body and blood being in the Eucharist. Um, was brought home to me recently because I was listening online to a debate uh, between um, an atheist and a Christian. And um, the atheist, uh, his name is well known, Richard Dawkins, a professor for the public um, understanding of science at Oxford, at least he was. Um, And in the few minutes there in the opening part of the debate, he was not just disagreeing with, he was mocking the idea that, you know, God can you know, the, change the bo- the bread and the wine into the body and blood of Christ. And it seems utterly and completely ridiculous. Um, well, my job today is not to refute that, but I mean, though it could be refuted, but what part of the refutation would involve the fact that he didn't understand it. And I think this is what this is the case with many well-meaning Christians who um, find it difficult to understand that verse in all of its stark power. Uh, Jesus says, <clears throat> "Excuse me, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And he says later in chapter 15 that you have no life in you if you do not abide in the vine. I'm the vine, you are the branches. And if the branch does not abide in the, abide in the vine, then... You know, there's it's good for nothing but to be thrown out into the fire. In other words, Jesus is, is teaching us that we have to have a living or vital connection to him. And that the way that takes place in John chapter 6 is through the service or the ministry of the Eucharist. Now, uh, since most Protest, good-hearted Protestant Christians don't have the Eucharist um, and and in their churches and can't even conceive of what it really means, um, these words, I'm afraid, fall on deaf ears. So have they heard? Well, yes, at one level they have heard. They've heard the words. But have they heard in the sense of really understand what it is? I'm not so sure they have understood. And that reminds me, Ken, of that parable of the sower where the sower throws his seeds out and it falls on four different kinds of soils. And uh, we all are familiar with the story. Some are rocky soils, some are weeds and, you know, birds and all the other issues that come in to, to take the seeds away. But it's only the fourth soil that produces fruit. And when you look at the stories, particularly in Luke, the distinction is that all four soils, which represent a person receiving the gospel message, heard, but only the last soil understood. And therefore, it's through the understanding, the receiving uh, of that, that they were able to produce fruit. And as you you mentioned in the John 15 passage, you can't produce fruit unless you're abiding. And if you're not producing fruit, that's evidence you're not abiding. In fact, the context is you're thrown away, cut off like a branch because you're not producing fruit. I mean, all these ideas about this relationship between hearing the gospel 
and then understanding that and responding in obedience. All of that is the context of today's passage in Romans. That's the significance of today's passage in Romans. The context is the Jews, but there's a direct contact to our lives. And are we listening, are we responding? And what about those in our lives that aren't obeying? Do we have a responsibility to them so that they do respond? To that to do, you know, respond to the gospel. Mm-hmm. And uh, what, Ken, let's let's look at this passage then. Uh, and last, uh, we began with with Romans ten thirteen. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's from Joel chapter two thirty two. And then from verse fourteen through twenty one, Paul addresses a question again about the Jews. But he goes in verse four, first of all, verses fourteen through fifteen to <clears throat> use some logic here. Um, if you will, he gives the, uh, the mandate or the call or the, the rhetorical exhortation of what our responsibility is with this gift we've received in relationship to those who have not yet received the gospel message. And he says in verse 14, but how are men to call upon him and whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without a preacher? And how can men preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. You know, I'm wondering, I've got to admit to the audience that uh, Verse 14 was, one, for me, one of the most important verses uh, that I had posted on my pulpit. Uh, a copy of it was there on my pulpit when I was a Presbyterian pastor to remind me of what my task was when I got up there every Sunday morning. I also had a little, a little uh, quote on my pulpit that said, we would see Jesus, and that's from another place in the Gospel of mm-hmm. John. Yeah, right. uh, to remind me that it wasn't about me as a preacher, it wasn't about my robes, it wasn't about all, it was about Jesus. But I also had this text that reminded me that those people sitting there, and I just had verse 14, in which it said, how can men call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without a preacher? And so that was... And I'm guessing, Ken, that that was also for you, the the raison d'etre, the mandate behind mm-hmm. why we went to seminary and why we were in that pulpit on Sunday mornings. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, for any man um, who felt uh, that God was calling him to the Protestant ministry, uh, whatever the donation may be, uh, <clears throat> this verse summarizes um, one of the key and most profound motivations for being a preacher, and that is to uh, allow people to hear the gospel so they can believe and therefore call upon the name of the Lord. Um, Paul is bringing this, as you said there earlier, he's kind of doing a, you might say, a, a depth lo- a, a depth logic uh, analysis here because he's saying if they're going to call on the name of the Lord, what does that 
presuppose? What does that assume? And calling on the name of the Lord assumes belief in him. And belief in him uh, assumes that they've heard about him. And the hearing about him uh, assumes that someone has told them or has gone to preach to them and to proclaim to them uh, the gospel. Um, I think it's verse 15 where we begin to see some very interesting difference there. But, but that sequence that he's going through now, calling, believing, hearing, preaching, sending, that is an extremely important trajectory there for understanding that Paul here is <clears throat> saying that both immediately the Jews around him uh, have been told and they can call upon the name of the Lord, but he expands it to anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. The only way for them to call is for someone to tell them and someone to tell them the only way for that to happen is for them to be sent. Kent, uh, uh, as, you're, as you're saying that, it, it strikes me that um, it's, this seems to be pretty contradictory to our, to our old Calvinist understanding of the grace of God and the uh, passivity of the will. Mm. And I'm wondering how Luther and Calvin dealt with verse 14. Because it's historical that for a very long period of time, uh, maybe 200 years, the Calvinist churches did not send out missionaries to the world until Adoniram Judson went out as a Baptist, I think. I might get that right. But they didn't send them out because they assumed that if the Lord is going to call those people, he would do it. It's not up to us telling them that that's a work of grace if he so predestined them from the beginning of the world to respond to God. It seemed to me that it, that Luther and Calvin made a big deal out of it not being our responsibility to tell because it was totally up to God. Well, this was a debate with, within the Calvinists. Of course, that's the history that you and I know best of all the different Protestant traditions. Um, there was a there was a debate among Calvinists uh, themselves about um, about the uh, wisdom of going out and telling. There was those who strongly said, as you did, well, if, if God wants to save them, He can save them. If He's elected them to chosen them for eternal life, He can save them without our help. And others in the Calvinist camp responded and said, yes, but God has called us to be the instruments of bringing that message so that they can be saved. So there was quite a debate uh, in them, uh, among them, I should say. What I find even more interesting is that in the American context, and, and really also in Europe, but especially in the American context, that there are many who have started church after church after church, uh, you know, uh, in in. Storefronts or just gone out and started churches in in makeshift um, in makeshift facilities, and no one has sent them. They've just started yeah. preaching yeah. because they feel that God has called them to do that, and they know that. I think Paul here implies that a man can't go and preach unless he's been sent. Oh yeah, can't. You know that was in my own journey of the church. That verse fifteen was one of those many verses that I never saw. It just never struck me. And when it finally hit me, 
what 15 says, how can men preach unless they are sent? And can the word behind that is that Greek word apostolosin, from which we get the word apostle. And this whole idea, there's a great history of this in the early church. It really upon this has built the idea of how to deal with heresies and heretics. Who do you listen to? Paul was already dealing with the Galatians. And I know, Ken, in your work with early church fathers, this is the foundation even to apostolic succession and why it's so important. Well, this is absolutely right. And there's no clearer place. There's many places to look at in the church fathers. But the clearest that I'd recommend to all of us is in um, the uh, Against Heresies from St. Irenaeus. In the late 2nd century, Irenaeus is facing uh, these Gnostic teachers who want to draw people away from the gospel, away from the church into their own uh, idea of what the gospel is in the sex. Remember, these Gnostics were professing Christians. There are people that said, oh, we know, we know we've got this um, esoteric knowledge. We have access to a special knowledge that allows us to tell you what the gospel really is. And so Irenaeus um, engages these people in debate. And in book three, particularly chapter three, he talks about the fact that you can't claim authority to preach the gospel unless you're tied to one of the apostolic sees, that is the apostolic bishoprics. And he says this, he says the church is throughout the world. It's in Germania, Germany. It's in Britain. It's here in Gaul or France. It's in the east. It's in Jerusalem. It's gone east into India. It's all over the world. But it's the same gospel. I think that's significant. You have this tremendous diversity of language and cultures already by the late second century in Christianity. And yet, Irene is saying it's the same gospel. Um, but wait a minute, Irenaeus, uh, the, the gospel of the Gnostics you're saying is different, so how can it be the same? Well, that's not the true gospel, Irenaeus says. How do you know? <clears throat> you know it by apostolic succession, where you can trace back the, the preachers of the gospel to the apostles through a line of succession of bishops. Excellent. Let's pause there, Ken. We'll pick right up on that. After the break, you're listening to Marcus Grodi and Kenneth Howell from Coming Home Network International. Listen to Deep in Scripture. We'll be back in just a moment. Hello, I'm Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, I'd like to tell you about my newest book, What Must I Do to Be Saved? A growing number of Christians today believe that all that is necessary for salvation is an individual's faith in Jesus. Churches everywhere proclaim this Jesus and me theology based upon a simple interpretation of John 3.16. They diminish the need for rituals, sacraments, creeds, or even membership in any particular church. But is this true? In this book, I examine how salvation has always come by being a faithful individual in the family of God, the church. For information, please go to chresources.com or call 740-450-1175. Thank you.
What do all these have in common? A former agnostic, a fallen away Catholic, and a once upon a time Protestant. Find out next time on The Journey Home. Marcus Grodi invites pilgrims from all walks of life to share how they made it home to the Catholic Church. The Journey Home, only on EWTN. The Journey Home is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. Deep in Scripture is brought to you by the Coming Home Network International. We are a network of inquirers, converts, as well as lifelong Catholics helping one another grow closer to Jesus Christ. On our website, you'll find conversion stories, articles, and videos, as well as information about becoming a member and receiving our CH newsletter. Visit chnetwork.org or connect with us on Facebook or Twitter. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host, and, and I'm joined by Dr. Kenneth Howell. And we paused uh, before the break, and I want to remind you, if we'd love to have you connect with us, deepinscripture.com. You can find out all the archived programs. You can check out the work that we do here at the Coming Home Network. Um, and we'd love to have an email from you. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter. Um, we, we paused um, with this issue of the importance of Preachers being sent. And this, I didn't see that. Uh, as Ken mentioned, there are churches starting up. There's a new church, I think I read, in a, in a Protestant starts every five days in America. A denomination starting every five days. Uh, it's amazing. And this idea of who sent you? Uh, what authority is behind you? Is it just saying, well, Jesus sent me? Uh, well, that's all well and good, but we have... Great examples throughout history of of men and women who believe they were called by God to go out and preach, and they're preaching heresies, or they, you know, Jim Jones with his Kool Aid, you know the, mm-hmm. uh, you know who sent, and it's not just about us looking at another person and challenging that preacher, you know, what's your authority, what are your credentials, who sent you, but it's our own selves, you know, what is the authority behind what we preach, and the reason I was mentioning during the break, Ken. Uh, the question of who planted the church in Galatia. The reason I bring that up is that we see in Galatians 1, Galatians is one of the earliest letters that Paul wrote, um, bef- penned even before the Gospels were written down as far as we know. We, the scholars guess that. So that's early, early, early on. But he's already admitting in chapter 1, verse 6, when he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which you, that to that which we preached to you, let him be accursed or anathema. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you received, let him be accursed. It seems to me, Ken, that there in immediately that one of the earliest letters of Galatians, we see the same criteria that you referenced from uh, uh, Irenaeus. 
that became the criteria for the early church to determine which of these many opinions can we hold on to as a a responsible and authoritative expression of the gospel. Yeah. Yeah, the... uh I think it's very clear from um, Paul. Paul, for example, if you look at the um, the letters of First and Second Timothy, just yet the other day we we celebrated the um, feast of Saint Paul. Well, it fell on a Sunday this year, so we didn't celebrate it. But then, then following that is the feasts of um, Saints Timothy and Titus. And if you read the letters of Timothy and Titus in the New Testament, one thing is very clear. In that Paul is saying to both of these young bishops or pastors that they should hold on to the deposit of faith which has been given to them. For example, he says in 2 Timothy 1, 13 and 14, Paul says to Timothy, What you have heard from me keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in you. In other words, what he's saying here is that you have been given a responsibility to pass on the faith. The role of the Christian, the role of the Catholic parent, the role of the Catholic educator is not to make up a new religion or new faith, new things. It is to pass on that which we have received. And that's why that idea of apostolic succession is so important. Now, uh, if I may just say, take a moment and say, I, as a Protestant Calvinist, did not believe in apostolic succession. I remember, in fact, when I was in seminary, one of my favorite professors, a very fine uh, Presbyterian uh, New Testament scholar, um, he said in class one day, the uh, idea of apostolic succession is a contradiction in terms. In other words, apostles were by their very nature the foundation of the church and could not be succeeded by anyone else. And then I began to read, in, when I began to read in the church fathers about apostolic succession, I said, no, wait a minute, they can't both be right. Yep. Either there is apostolic succession or was in the early church or there wasn't. And when I began to look at those texts, like the one I just read from you from Second Timothy, about guarding the deposit of faith, I realized that Christ, in his establishment of the church, set up not only the gospel in the sense of the content of faith, but he also set up offices to guard that gospel. And that's what Irenaeus is talking about in the second century. To guard the gospel is the responsibility of a bishop of the church. When I was a Presbyterian, Ken, the creed that I held to most tightly was the Westminster Confession. Even though our Presbyterian book of confessions listed all the confessions of the history of the church, yet Westminster Confession, which was from the 1650s, uh, if I remember right, it was from the divines, uh, mm-hmm. the, the Scottish Presbyterians and all of that, and that dealt with that issue at the time, the covenanters and all that. But the point was, okay, how do you know if the gospel's true? And the Westminster Convention clearly pointed not to a church and not to uh, individual opinion, but to the scriptures alone as the foundation. Mm-hmm. And if I remember right, the Westminster Confession dealt with the issue, well, how do you know which Bible? 
to use. And, and, and it said mm-hmm. that it, the truth is found in the originals, in the originals mm-hmm. of yeah. the... And so therefore, well, then who do we trust? And the irony is that it, the ones that are sent are the ones that can translate the original languages. So it, it ironically led to those scholars that could translate the original language kind of became the new bishops, if you will, of the truth. How do you know what? Well, you got to be able to read the Greek. You got to be able to go. So that's why you, you and I can study Greek in seminary. So we could be author, authoritative witnesses of the authentic gospel because we could, as I did every week, translate it from the Greek, made my own translation mm-hmm. of the New Testament as if, therefore, I was getting back down to the, quote, deposit of faith, which is in the original languages. And look at all the, the contradictory opinions out there from people yeah. of Bible alone. But the catechism of the church, the very first line that St. John Paul II says when he opens up the catechism, turn to the first letter of the first ca- uh, page of the catechism, and he says that guarding the deposit oh, is yes. the duty of the church. Right. That's what this is about. It's guarding, not coming up with new things. It's about holding on to that, as you said, Paul said to Timothy, that you received from the beginning. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, the idea is is very clear that this actually begins, um, and, I, and I talk about this in an article that's going to be coming out soon in our March newsletter, uh, which we would encourage any of our listeners, if they want to receive the newsletter, to get in touch with our office. We'd love to send it to you. But I, I, I talk about this and uh, this fact that you're talking, this aspect that you're talking about, that is the idea of handing on the faith, the paradosis, the traditio, the tradition, is not even begun in the New Testament. It's begun in the Old Testament, where, where uh, throughout the Psalms, for example, the psalmist is reflecting upon the great gifts that they have been given um, in the past, in the Exodus and the prophets and all these things. And yet, uh, usually there's a lament that the people of Israel have turned away and not held on to these gifts. They've not, they've not received them. They've not passed them on uh, from that. Um, it's interesting here then that, that in, um, in this text, Paul... He's dealing with that very same problem, and he's asking the question, well, wait a minute. The underlying question is, why have the Jews not believed? Is it because they haven't heard? Now, verse 18, for example, begins, uh, actually, it begins in verse 16, where he says, all have not obeyed the gospel. I have not all obeyed the gospel. Well, Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then verse 17 says, well, then. Faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard through the word of Christ. Now the sort of objections are going to be answered. He says, but, but I say, wait a minute. Now, in, in the version that we have in front of us, Marcus, I think it's the new or revised standard version, it says, but I ask, have they not heard? Now, let me retranslate that just a little bit to, to bring some force. But it's not the case that they've not heard, is it? No, absolutely not. They have heard. That's what Paul is saying. They've heard. And then he quotes from Psalm 18, at least in the Greek text, um, that their voice has gone out um, into all the world, into the ends of the earth. 
their, their words are there. In other words, his first thing in verse 18 is to say, well, wait a minute. <laughs> if you say they've not heard, but, but they've, they've heard, haven't they? And, and Paul's answer is, of course they've heard. Yes, they've heard already. And then he goes on from there. Yeah, one of the keys to mention, it seems, Ken, is that uh, we recognize that one of the battles that Paul constantly fought against during his entire time as a missionary was defending his own authority. Uh, it's, it particularly comes out in Second Corinthians. Uh, yes, that's true. You know, it's a battle. In Galatians, he's got a point back to having received the affirmation of the pillars of the church in Cephas. And it's interesting when we look at this whole section from 13 through 21, he's basing his argument on Old Testament prophecy. Mm-hmm. So in other words, it isn't just Paul's opinion. It's based on he's speaking to these Jewish and Gentile Christians on the authority of the scriptures but applied correctly. So mm-hmm. it isn't that we set the scriptures aside. No, of course, they are part of the sacred tradition. They are part of the deposit as long as they're understood correctly. And Paul's pointing out that this very uh, problem with the Jews was forecast, was a part of the Old Testament, as well as the idea that the the remnant of Israel would not be just Israelites, but it would include the Gentiles who would respond to the gospel of Christ. This is the big message of the Old Testament. And that's why he's quoting Isaiah. He's, he's quoting from the suffering servant passages. He's quoting from Deuteronomy. And he's pointing that this experience that's happening in the early church was foretold in the Old Testament. And now it's coming to fruition in response to the gospel of Christ. Paul is trying to help us to understand the circumstances in which he and those early Christians lived. And so uh, when he was asking this question, well, when he's doing this reasoning about, well, they can't call upon those whom you have, they, about whom they haven't heard, and they can't hear unless someone's sent to preach— and they can't, and they can't be a preacher unless there's some, unless that preacher is sent. He's answering now these these questions, and in verse 19, picking up on what you were just saying, Marcus, he says, because someone might object. Well, wait a minute, but maybe Israel doesn't understand. And again, to retranslate verse 19 to make it just a little clearer, he said, "But I say, it's not the case that Israel didn't understand, did it?" No, of course not. And he goes, then he quotes about Moses. He says, you see, even Moses said, I'll make, I'll make you jealous um, of those who are not a nation. And with a foolish nation, I will make you angry. He's trying to help them to understand the times in which they're living. And that's what divine revelation always does. It always helps us to understand not only ourselves, but these times in which we're living. You know, I, I'd like to address a misunderstanding, Ken, and I'm glad you're there in case what I say isn't kosher, uh, because I want to make sure that I'm reflecting on the deposit. I know that I bring, I still, after all these years, have baggage from my former Lutheran Calvinist uh, heritage, and sometimes it's still there. So I want to make sure that I'm, uh, you know, not just speaking through the lenses of my past. 
But it seems that one of the, the assumptions from my Lutheran Calvinist past is that, that before the resurrection of Jesus Christ, no one had the grace to understand the gospel. And almost like none of the preaching of Jesus could have been understood, that it was only falling on deaf ears. It was falling on pre-resurrection ears. So therefore, we can't hold any of those people accountable, almost as if Jesus himself wasn't really expecting anyone to respond. And, and the problem with that is it almost makes him, him a, uh, a disingenuous teacher, mm, yeah. as if he was laying a burden on his Jewish audiences, burdens that they could not respond to. But that's not um, uh, an honest portrayal of the way he proclaimed his message. He preached the Sermon on the Mount before the resurrection. And I remember, Ken, as a, as a Calvinist, I wasn't always sh- sure what to do with the Sermon on the Mount because of those calls to be holy, to call to be perfect, to call to, uh, to live out the Beatitudes. All of these were proclaimed to Jewish listeners. And the point is, did they hear and understand? The question is, could they understand? They may have heard, but before the resurrection, did they have the graces to understand? Yeah, pushed to an even further extreme. You, you saw that in certain forms of uh, uh, Protestant dispensationalism. Now, for our hearers that don't know what dispensationalism is, uh, by the way, there are dispensationalists who doesn't don't know that they're dispensationalists. <laughs> uh, I had this happen to me one time uh, as a minister. I, was, I never, I never was a dispensationalist. Uh, a dispensationalist was a person who could be most easily identified by as someone who believes in the rapture and the um, you know tri- great tribulation and the, the thousand year kingdom and the great white throne of judgment. And it's a particular way of understanding uh, the history or eschatology, the history of uh, right up before the end of history. But dispensationalists in more extreme forms um, used to sort of divide up scripture into various kinds of categories. And the category of that was for the Sermon on the Mount was the category of pre-resurrection and therefore pre-grace. In other words, there wasn't any real and under, there wasn't really any expectation that anybody was going to be able to live by the Sermon on the Mount. You had to wait until after the resurrection, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and grace, and then people could look back at it and say, oh, well, there's good things to learn there as well. Um, of course, what that does is it it certainly, as they say, uh, divides up Scripture, and it doesn't keep the unity and the beauty of, of Scripture, which is something that we can't say in favor of our Calvinist heritage, is that it tended to keep a continuity across the ages, which the Catholic Church also uh, endorses. Um, what Paul, I think, is is getting at here with your regard to, as you mentioned, all these quotations from the Old Testament, we not, might not be making uh, the, the connection as explicitly as it needs to be. And that is, I think it comes up in verse 20, where he, and I'm going to translate this a little loosely to get the point across, um, but actually it says in our version, then Isaiah is so bold as to say, in other words, 
Isaiah is is emboldened to even make this proclamation. I was found, God speaking, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made known to those who did not ask after me or or seek or want to find me. Here he's talking about the Gentiles. This would have been very difficult for many devout Jews to understand. But what he's doing, he's saying, you see, it's already in the Old Testament. It's already in there in the prophets that God was going to expand this opportunity of salvation for the world, even for those that weren't even seeking for him. And then suddenly they are found. God is found by those who were outside the covenant. It reminds me of stories of... um, of certain missionaries, both Catholic and Protestant, who when they first went to Africa uh, back in the 19th century in in droves and began to tell them the gospel, the Africans just responded in mm. with enormous enthusiasm in the gospel. Now, and so that today, I mean, Africa is perhaps one of the most Christian continents on the face of the earth. Uh, yes, Christianity has a lot of growing, a lot of maturing to do there. Sometimes they say that Christianity is Africa is like a, it's a mile wide but an inch deep. Um, but nevertheless, there was an enthusiastic response by the African peoples of various stripes to the message of Christ and the gospel. And they identified themselves as Christian precisely because those missionaries came with great love to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. The fact that God is able to save those even outside the borders of Israel did not mean the gospel shouldn't be preached to the Gentiles in the first century. Nor does it mean that because God can save people outside the Catholic Church, it doesn't mean we shouldn't have Catholic missionaries. We need to have Catholic missionaries going and proclaiming the gospel. It makes me think verse 20 that you just read there was fulfilled in the Magi. You know, yeah. you know. There we have what, what Epiphany is all about. We have these Magi who are not Jews; they're following the star, they're being led by God and open to the Christ Child. They're being drawn to that. I mean, all through the Old Testament, the prophets are calling them to obedience, pointing ahead to a Messiah, pointing ahead to a, a you know a new covenant, and also in these prophets, pointing ahead that their responsibility is to tell the world. It isn't just a gift that they are to hold under yeah. their bushel basket, as the Lord would say in the Sermon on the Mount, that they are to tell. And it reminds me of a passage in the beginning of John chapter 6. We referenced John 6 earlier in the program, 52 and on, about the Eucharist. But earlier in that chapter, after Jesus has fed the multitude and they've responded to him and they want to make him a king, And Jesus says, do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which is, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him has God the Father set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. This is before the resurrection. Jesus is speaking to the Jewish audience who've been awakened, calling them to understand what he has said and then to obey. And the point all through John is to listen and to respond, to believe, to change, to respond to grace and to be obedient to Christ. And all through we see some listening and some falling away like 
the disciples didn't like his words about the Eucharist. And most of them turned away because they really didn't believe. And then we see Peter saying, where else are we going to go? You've got the words of eternal life. And sometimes understanding and obedience to Christ is also recognizing uh, our lack of belief and our need for Christ's grace to open our hearts and minds fully to him. You know, one of the things that has just uh, stayed with me over the years is <clears throat> before I knew really any any Catholics on a, what I would call, you know, more than a superficial basis, um, it looked to me like standing on the outside that the Catholic Church was this kind of, uh, you know, died in the wool, um, stolid, uh, stuck in uh, stuck in the mud um church that had this ritual but people didn't try to go out and preach the gospel they, they which was very important to us as evangelical protestants you know that was the one of the signs that you really were a christian was that you were going out in various ways trying to preach the gospel and you know what has struck me over the years of being a catholic is how much People want to preach the gospel in the Catholic Church. One time I was in the Bahamas on the island of um, Grand Bahama in the city of Freeport. And I was staying with uh, the pastor of the parish there. And we got to talk. And he was, well, he was from Canada. He was a, what was called the Scarborough Fathers. Uh, I think they called the Marino Fathers here in the United States. But he had been a missionary from Canada in the Bahamas for something like 30 years. And I asked him, I said, Father, do you ever, have you ever, in all those 30 years or plus of being a, being a priest, have you ever maybe had moments of doubt? Well, maybe I shouldn't have been a priest and so forth and so on. And he says, never a moment's doubt. Every morning I get up and I ask the question, how can I help people draw closer to Jesus today? How can I help them hear the true meaning of the gospel? So there are so many people in the Catholic Church that love to preach the gospel, that want to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And you may be wondering whether you've been sent. Well, Pope John Paul II, his wonderful encyclical, Christophidus Leach, he says that by our baptisms, we have been sent. But our responsibility is to make sure that what we pass on is that which we have received. And the way we can know that what we received is true is whether we received it from the church. And that's why Christ gave us his church. Make sure we're tied to that which we've received from the beginning. Ken, thank you for joining me again. And all of you, thank you for joining us on this program. Again, go to deepinscripture.com to find out more about this program. And God bless you. We look forward to being with you again next week.